Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um, it's very lovely to be here with you all today. Can you hear me okay? I just want to make sure that. Okay, great. Um, I want to begin this morning with a couple of uh, land acknowledgements um, that I'm going to borrow from a couple of different places. The first is uh, touching the earth to our ancestors. Uh, it's a version from the Plum Village Fourfold Sangha, and it was a, a, adopted by the Arise Sangha in the Bay Area. And Arise means awakening through race, intersectionality, and social equality. In gratitude, I bow to this land and to all of the ancestors who made it available. I see that I am whole, protected, and nourished by this land and all of the living beings that have been here and made life easy and possible for me through all their efforts. I see all of those known and unknown who have made this country a refuge for people of so many origins and colors by their talent, perseverance, and love. Those who have worked hard to build schools, hospitals, bridges, and roads to protect human rights, to develop science and technology, and to fight for freedom and social justice. The second land acknowledgement um, is one that was created by the Indigenous New Hampshire Collaborative Collective in consultation with local tribal leaders and Indigenous peoples elsewhere. I want to include this land acknowledgement because it was written by the peoples who lived and are living here where I currently am in New Hampshire. I am speaking from land that is located on Indakina, which is the traditional ancestral homeland of the Abenaki, Penacook, and Wabanaki peoples, past and present. I acknowledge and honor with gratitude the land and waterways and the Alnabak, or people, who have stewarded Indakina throughout the generations. The intention for this statement is to fight the invisibility of indigenous peoples in the state of New Hampshire. And it calls on all of us to join in adopting this statement or creating our own statements that reflect local indigenous peoples past and present. And in honoring the lasting connection to and stewardship of the land and waterways that we now refer to as New Hampshire. Our aim is to participate in lifting up local indigenous cultural heritage by adopting some Abenaki terms and hopefully inviting them into our current dialect. So good morning, everyone. Uh, from uh, a very small uh, city in I think Tuftonboro County, New Hampshire, the name of the city is Ossipi. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's uh, named after one of the indigenous tribes here in New Hampshire. Um, as was mentioned in 
the introduction for me, I am at Boston University. So um, I'm not usually in New Hampshire. I'm in another um, city that also has its own deep, difficult, and complicated relationship to the indigenous peoples of this country. Um, I'm taking actually the theme of my talk this morning. I was trying to sort of think about what's happening for me now. And when I realized I would be asked to do a land acknowledgement that sort of began to preoccupy my, my mind. Um, in particular, because I, it's my understanding that many of the indigenous communities here in the United States have really been calling on us to do more than just offer um, land acknowledgements that essentially say, we understand that the people were here, they're not here anymore, and that's a really bad thing. But doesn't actually call on us to do more with our time, with our resources, to engage with what it looks like to really honor a people and a culture. Um, so it's more, the land is important, um, but the spirit with which we allow that acknowledgement to inhabit our very beings, our everydayness is ultimately what matters. And I wanted to, that led me to thinking about um, the Sandokai, uh, which is a poem written by Sakito Kisen, who is one of our Chinese uh, ancestors in the Soto Zen lineage. Um, for the sake, I guess I, let me go back. <laughs> wind back a little bit. And uh, first I wanna say thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. I believe I came to speak to Clouds and Water um, last year uh, before I was ordained. And I was ordained June 19th of 2022. Um, and I I, I wonder how I am different today than I was last year and in what ways I am the same that I was um, when, I, when I was able to visit with you last year. And one of the most important differences I think is that last year I was really unsure of and uncertain about my connection to the land in which I was living. I felt incredibly haunted by a legacy of atrocity in Massachusetts, um, in Boston in particular. Um, and that's partly because as a descendant of enslaved people and as a descendant of indigenous people, both of whom I know very little about, um, I've had on my mind the speech that Frederick Douglass gave what to the slave is the 4th of July. 
And ultimately, I think he's asking an entire community to think about what it means to be considered, really considered a part of the founding of this country. And as I walk through the streets of Boston, I'm hard pressed often to see and feel the presence of ancestors who have been erased. And I am one of few people that have the privilege of being at what is considered a world-class institution, um, the first seminary, Methodist seminary in the United States. I'm studying at a place that is fortunate to have the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and Howard Thurman and Ellie Wiesel and countless others whose names aren't known. Um, and yet, I am also in a place where I know there were slave ships and harp um, entering and exiting the borders and the waters of surrounding Boston. I know that the land that I'm walking on every day is the product of genocide and forced migration. And the contradiction between my privilege and the connection to this really uncomfortable unknowing, I think is even more challenged when I walk through spaces like Boston Common, which is a space that um, is held up in popular memory right now as a space that is for all the people. It's common and it's claim to fame is that it was fought for the common people of Boston and buried underneath that space are men who fought in the Revolutionary War. And there are little plaques around the park um, that explain this history. But the history that it explains is largely disconnected to the people who came before. Um, it's sort of like the history of the commons started like right at the moment when we were deciding that the history of the country was built on the values that were being fought for in the Revolutionary War. And this is troubling to me because I think, what does it really mean to include the histories of other people as that which includes the founding of our country? What would it mean to us? What does it mean to me as a descendant of enslaved people to consider the 4th of July as my holiday? And I know this isn't the 4th of July, but because of the Memorial holiday and um, again, thinking about this land acknowledgement and the way that it landed for me, I wonder 
what would it mean for us to consider the values of these erased peoples as part of the foundation of our sense of moral and ethical action in the United States, right? We say the Pledge of Allegiance, we tend to connect our values as a nation to those which are connected to the group of men we call the Founding Fathers. And I think that they are, I mean, that's in and of itself problematic. <laughs> um, there were mothers and sisters and brothers and people for whom those labels are inappropriate. <laughs> um, and I think that it's important to consider the value of an enslaved man who fought his way to freedom, enslaved men and women who fought their way to freedom, indigenous people who are still currently fighting for the value of their culture. I think it's important to consider that these values are part of the founding of our country. And I wonder what it looks like to inhabit that. So back to the sand, okay. Um, I can't uh, read all of it. And so I, I know that some of you um, may be new to Zen practice, new to Soto Zen practice. So please forgive me for not being able to give you the sort of detailed history of the Sandokai, which is what one would normally do if one was going to talk about um, this poem or any piece of text. Uh, what's important to me today, and give me a minute, I'm gonna try to find it um, on my laptop without losing you all. Um, What's important to me about the Sandokai is that we often say Sandokai means harmony of difference and equality. And as I've been exploring this poem, I realized that it is actually so much more than just this harmony between difference and equality. And Sekito Kisan, who's the author, again, of the Sandokai, who was born in China um, in the eighth century, was interested in many things, um, not least of which that Buddhist practice was during his lifetime becoming just really popular and also somewhat divisive. Different schools in Buddhist practice um, were sort of fighting for understanding of what the Buddhist teachings were, how we should understand them, and how we should practice. And most of my life is dedicated to interreligious leadership and learning. Um, and the, the reason for that is because I'm interested in really understanding the differences between myself and my practice and that of other people who are trying to enter the world in a way that accords with their values 
right? They're trying to make it a part of their everyday life in the same way that I am. So I'm going to offer uh, Suzuki Roshi's words um, from Branching Streams, Flow in the Darkness, which is the book that he, well, it's, it's a book that is a transcription essentially of his teaching. He gave a talk on the Sandokai. And part of what he says in the first chapter is the way of Seigen and Sekito, Seigen Gyoshi was Sekito Kisen's teacher. Their way has a more gentle quality. It's the elder brother's way. The elder brother may not be so able or so bright, but he is very gentle. This is our understanding when we talk about Soto and Rinzai. Sometimes Soto Zen is called Menmitsu no Kafu, a very careful and considerate style. Sagan's way is to find everything within himself. It is to realize the great mind that includes everything and to practice accordingly. Sandokai, the San literally means three, but here it means things. Do is sameness, which is to identify one thing with another. It also refers to oneness or one's whole being, which here means great mind or big mind. Many and one are different ways of describing one whole being. To completely understand the relationship between one great whole being and the many facets of that one great whole being is Kai. Kai means to shake hands, to have a feeling of friendship. This one great whole being and the many things that are good friends or more than good friends because they are originally one. That for me has been a deeply inspiring and thought-provoking statement. The idea that the equality, that equality and difference are a part of what makes us whole makes me personally pause and think about how I embody that in my own life. And as I've been thinking about it recently, I've been thinking that this handshake, it represents a couple of things. It represents the kind of equality that isn't about balancing scales, but more so understanding the importance of valuing what each one brings to the table. So for me, I liken this to baking. My roommate this morning sent me pictures of a frittata that she made, and she's never made a frittata before. And she said it had tomatoes, chicken, and broccoli uh, inside of it. And some had a sprinkling of cheese, but it was really bland. And I said, well, you have to season the chicken and you have to season the eggs before you mix them together. And then she goes, oh yeah, right. There wasn't any seasoning. And she followed this um, video 
that she that she saw on Instagram. And I don't really have Instagram. So I said to her, like, one, you can't see it or, or you can only see it. You can't really smell it or, you know, have a sense of it. But also, if you're only following the video, then you also weren't thinking about what you were bringing to the table, what your palate is like, what flavors you wanted to explore and eat this morning. And this is essential because we are part of the process. I also thought all of the different ingredients of that frittata are equal, even though they may not be there in the same amounts. So mm -hmm. you'd have a dash of salt, you know, I love cumin with everything. So I would put like half a teaspoon of cumin in it, you know, but those things are equal in the way that they inform how I um, eat the food, appreciate the food and enjoy the food. And they are different. So this to me is more than just diversity for diversity's sake. And mostly I'm thinking through and sharing with you and hoping that during our discussion together, we can honestly think about the ways in which we walk with this through our lives every day. Knowing that our lives are made up of a variety of communities who may or may not be familiar with what we're trying to practice with and how we're trying to hold our practice in our lives. So I remember when I was first coming to practice, I was born and raised and baptized in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And coming to the realization that I needed to find a different way of expressing my spiritual life, my inner spiritual calling was really difficult. And I needed a way to try to find some harmony between my cultural roots and these new cultural roots that I was finding my way towards in practice. And I needed to find something that was the same, something that allowed me to stay connected to the people and the values and the culture with which I was raised. And I also needed to find something different. I needed to find something that spoke to me in a way that would allow me to live my life and embody my values. Buddhism, specifically Soto Zen Buddhism, is a language that for whatever reason, I seem to understand. I think I understand. I want to understand. I, my feeling today is that this has essentially been the journey of my life. And I'm curious the way others embody practice as part of the calling. What are the ways in which we are challenged by practice? What are the ways in which we want to challenge practice? And also, what are the ways 
in which honoring what sometimes can feel like tension, staying with that tension in such a way that my life every day, again, is infused with this sense of wanting and wanting and wanting to stay with it, to be with it. And so I chose a vocational practice that led me to conflict resolution of all, of all things. And I think that that's partly because our way, this Buddhist way, is trying to help us, as Suzuki Roshi said, to hold hands with people, to be together, to realize that what I practice with shows up differently than for shows up differently for myself than it does for other people, but it's important that we hold each other's hands. And also because it's so important, I realize that it is hard. And I wanted to share just a couple of examples of that. The way that it's hard for me, one of the ways that it's hard for me is that I am um, engaged in trying to help aspiring leaders in spiritual practice discover their own sense of leadership in interfaith and interreligious communities. And this is not an easy thing. In order to get to the handshake, sometimes we have to really understand the things that are the barriers that are between our two hands. There's no way to get to resolution without deeply, deeply being present with the conflict. And I'm headed to South Africa in a couple of weeks to deeply engage in this very thing. And as I think about that, as I prepare for this trip, I am steeped, steeped in reading about the kinds of atrocities that happen to people, real people. And the only way I get to that reconciliation, to understanding how hard it is to shake someone else's hand through trauma, through difference that is more than just, I like chocolate, you like vanilla. What does that really mean? My vow is to stay present. So my vow is to really understand that difference. The other way it shows up for me is in trying to engage with the kinds of differences that are showing up in the community that I live in, which right now is struggling with the differences and the challenges between the Jewish and African-American communities in Boston. So trying to shake hands and find a mutual understanding about what it means to be oppressed people who want the value of that struggle to be honored and recognized is also important. I think the way we do that is 
deep conversation, deep listening, which are all of the things that are foundation of practice. I wanted to say something a little more about one of the things that is important about the Sandokai, the poem itself, is that it starts with the way has no northern or southern ancestor. And that is intentionally because Sekitev Kisan was interested in these different branches, these ways in which um, practice was starting to branch off. And as it branched off and people found different ways of understanding the Buddha's teaching, they were in conflict, really trying to figure out um, what was the superior teaching, right? And that caused a lot of strife. So Sekito Kisan ultimately was interested in how we can say, there's this way, there's this way, there's that way. Oh, here's another way. And also, ultimately, there is the way from which all of these schools are connected. So I think mostly right now, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling is a great desire to, to engage in the handshake, not so much the understanding of the Sandokai as a poem, um, not so much understanding it um, in the way that Suzuki Roshi did when he went through and explained this poem line by line. I think that's valuable. I think it's important that we all do that. And also I keep coming back to the first thing that he did was explain the meaning of those Chinese characters, which as a scholar, there's a part of me that is in love with going back to the word and you know the etymology and the, what does it mean? Where does it come from? Um, but as a, as, a, as a person who's committed to vocational practice, to this practice that says what is happening right now, mostly I think all the way back to the Buddha, our biggest mandate is to leave the comfortable place that we are in and dedicate our lives to going out and seeing and interacting and finding out what we don't know. He went out and he saw old age sickness and death. At least that's what we generally boil it down to. But I believe he saw a lot more than that. And I believe that he was asking us all to see as much about the world as we can, in particular, the suffering, not just of ourselves, but of other people. And not in a way that simply asks them to say, what are you holding on to? In a way that encourages us to let go of the things that are calling us to be our better selves, but asking us, what are we holding on to? in such a way that we are preventing other people from understanding what's important to us 
And that's a preventing us from understanding what's important to other people and doing the difficult work of shaking each other's hands. With that, I'm going to close and hope that we can have some conversation. I hope mostly to, as Greg Fain of Tassajara and San Francisco Zen Center would say, to encourage you in your practice. Being here together for me is an expression of a handshake. And I'm grateful, so grateful to have an opportunity to be in community together and to sit with and explore and express what it means to have a life of vow. So thank you all very much. So we have several minutes for questions, um, either here in the Zendo, or if there's anyone on Zoom, uh, you could perhaps raise your hand. No, oh, Magda. Hi. Like Magda. Hi, can everybody hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, good. Uh, well, um, Thank you for this talk, it's very profound. Um, I've been strolling in for the past two weeks with uh, shaking hands with somebody, a close friend that we, my husband and I stopped seeing for years, many years. And we recently reacquainted ourselves and we found out that this person has very political and religious views from us. So it's like um, ultra conservative, uh, thinking that if you're not Christian, then you are like worshiping the devil or something like that. And the yoga is sinful. And, and it's like, I have a I have a hard time because I know he's a good human being, but I'm having a hard time shaking hands with somebody who, who thinks, for example, that white privilege is just in our heads, you know, it's like, I, I'm struggling with that. So um, it's very difficult, as you said. So any advice how to approach this friend? <laughs> well, thank, you. thank you for the question. What a, um, it's so, uh, and I say thank you because I, I want to acknowledge that you yeah. have shared a sort of, what is a personal um, difficulty and challenge for you, which ultimately is at the heart of what we're doing, right? Um, how are we in relationship with other people, specifically the people um, with whom, you know, otherwise we would, we'd love to sit down and have a chat with. Um, and then it's when that little sticky thing comes up, uh, that's really difficult. One of the things that, the the young people that I'm working with, and by young people, I, I mean college students, um, is exactly this question. Um, what do we do with someone who is across a political divide, 
an economic divide, a social divide. And for me, the best that I think I can do is think about what my ultimate intention is, which is to be in relationship with everything and everyone around me and to realize that not that we are the same in the sense that we have the same values or the same approach to the world, but that if we are so deeply invested in whatever it is that we're talking about, that that tension is the most important thing. It's the most important thing because that's at the heart of the handshake. It's in the, the intention to sort of really sit down and understand. And there's no easy answers to that. I've had the same experience of needing to give myself some space from someone who has a strongly different viewpoint, right? I would never encourage someone to be in conversation in a way that is going to do harm to them. And at the same time, <clears throat> if it's a person with whom I genuinely want to be in communion with, then I try to remember that there isn't anything more important than the fact that they are a person with whom I want to be in communion with. That's the struggle, is not giving myself the privilege to say, I can walk away from this, right? It's saying, I can't walk away from this. And finding opportunities to be able to say, at the heart of what, it, what is challenging us is this, right? So what I hear is kind of what I experienced when I decided to explore Buddhist practice. And um, when I walk around here in Boston, I'm attending a Methodist seminary. So many of my classmates, when I first got here, would say to me I, that they thought I was a test from God of their faith. Um, <laughs> that I was an obstacle, I'm an obstacle put in their way. Um, and, you know, when I'm in my robes and I'm in my rakasu, which I wear often on campus, um, this is an expression of my, my most wholehearted way of being in the world. And the idea that that is causing someone to hold on to a value so much that it creates a barrier. I have a tremendous amount of compassion for that, partly because I have named myself Soto Zen. And I believe that this is a valuable way of being in the world. And I wouldn't want anybody to take that away from me. And I don't wanna take that away from anybody else. So I, admit to myself that part of the reason it's really hard for me to be in a conversation is in some ways because I want someone to believe the same thing that I believe. 
I want them to take seriously the same things that I take seriously. And I'm not able to see the ways in which they are taking it seriously. They're just coming at it from a very different point of view. And there's nothing about Buddhist practice that is gonna make that conversation easy. And what there is in Buddhist practice is the capacity to be able to sit there and internally, and even if you have to say it externally, say, this is really hard for me. And maybe we build intimacy by being able to articulate what is difficult about it instead of necessarily having to go past the what is difficult about it in order to find the solution right then. It's in the understanding why it's difficult. And that's different for all of us. It's different in every conversation, I think. But when I think about South Africans who are trying deeply to engage with other South Africans over an issue that is centuries old and that included the worst kind of violence, the first thing is to remember that there's a possibility for the handshake to happen and that you have to want it. You have to try to want it. And when you don't want it, you have to say, I don't want this <laughs> and keep trying anyway. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sagan. I believe that's, uh, well, that's both a great note to end on and also we're out of time. Um, so thank you very much for being with us here today and for your wonderful talk and discussion. Mm -hmm.